It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. With the Israel Hamas war on the brink of escalation, the impact of the conflict is being felt right here at home. A pro Palestine rally is underway in Vancouver at this hour amid increasing anxiety in the city's Jewish community. Our Troy Charles joins us live from Commercial Drive, where that pro Palestinian demonstration began just a short time ago. Troy. Yeah, Sophie, we're here right in the middle of Broadway, just about at 6th Avenue. And as you can hear and see behind me, the protest has started making its way up commercial. They're going to go to Grandview Park. It started at commercial in Broadway. And it started, it started rather timid. There was just maybe 10 or 12 people outside the Broadway commercial SkyTrain station. But it has definitely picked up. There's, I'd say, at least 500 supporters. It's about a half a block behind me here, as you can see. They are marching their way towards Grandview Park, as I mentioned. There is a heavy police presence here on every angle of this protest. There is a police escort, motorcycled police, leading this, leading this protest north on commercial. There's police officers on bikes around each side of the protest as it makes its way down the street as regular Vancouverites are working on their rush hour getting home. This is now coming up Commercial Avenue. And earlier, and sorry, earlier we were... It's just to show that this is a global affair. Earlier we chatted with a few people who were at the protest. We spoke to an Iranian, a Sikh, and a Lebanese, and here's what some of them had to say. Every time we try to speak up, we're either labeled like with Hamas or like we're, we, we, we support them, which we do not. We do not support Hamas. You know, they've done some terrible things. So we're just here to, to, to give voice to those people who can't because they just get shut down. They just get shut down. People just want to see one side of the story. And there's not just one side, there's two sides of it. All right, so we will definitely be staying on top of this. I'll have a full report on this coming up at 11 p.m. this evening, and we will keep an eye on things if anything happens. There has been no sign of any counter-protests yet this evening, so we'll throw it back to you. All right, hopefully things uh, stay peaceful there. Thanks for that. Troy Charles reporting uh, in the Commercial Drive area this evening. Now, the call from a former Hamas leader for an International Day of Action is only amplifying fear being felt by the city's Jewish community. Many of those families now taking extra precautions to keep their families safe. Alyssa Thibault reports. It's anything but a normal day at school when police are placed outside for safety. I'm so thankful that they're here, but they shouldn't have to be here. We spoke with parents too scared to appear on camera, but determined to move ahead for their children. I brought my daughter to school today because she's three. She deserves to go to school. 
She deserves to be safe. Despite the visible police presence at Vancouver's Talmud Torah School, only half the students came to class. The fear of being targeted, keeping many at home. This 15-year-old, who we're calling Leah, goes to a public school. I'm one of the only Jewish students, and I, I don't want to have to be scared at school. <laughs> She says she already experienced anti-Semitic bullying at school three years ago. There were boys that were um, harassing and bullying her and yelling free Palestine at her. All week, Leah has been home with her mom. I do not want my child to have to go to a public high school in Canada and be harassed because she's Jewish. <laughs> feeling only heightened by escalating tensions, with a former Hamas leader calling for Friday the 13th to be a day for worldwide protests in support of violence against Israel. The Vancouver Police Department says it is not aware of any direct threats here, but that is little comfort. The feeling of fear is palpable in our community right now. Rabbi Infeld says the number of people at his services has doubled this week, a community looking to each other in a time of fear. I would ask that the greater community understand what's taking place and offer and show support. Alyssa Thibault, Global News. A Burnaby man is desperate for word about his two children who are trapped in Gaza. He lost contact with them two days ago and is hoping the federal government can help bring his children here to safety. Aaron MacArthur has the story. A desperate plea. We're in Gaza. A father's helplessness. We're in Gaza. Mohammed Fayad's two children are still in Gaza, unable to leave. This video from two days ago, the last communication he's had with them. I keep trying to reach them, but uh, it seems like there's no any. Uh, uh, you know, connect to the internet. Uh, maybe there is no electricity. Maybe they're, they're mobile. They are not uh, charging well. Maybe the batteries died already. So I have no idea what's going on. Fayad is a government-sponsored refugee with permanent resident status in Canada. He fled Gaza in 2013, finally arriving in Canada about a year and a half ago. His kids have grown up without him. He wants to know what the Canadian government can do to help them to safety. They have their own PR uh, application, but the, their, their application is still uh, uh, under the process. Yeah, I wish if they can consider the, my case as a permanent residence as well. Or The government says there are about 150 Canadians who have requested help leaving the Palestinian enclave. There is talk of a humanitarian corridor opening into Egypt Saturday afternoon, but Global Affairs Canada says the details are far from finalized. As leaflets are dropped by the Israeli Air Force onto northern Gaza, warning civilians to move south to avoid the worst of a possible invasion, Fayad says he feels powerless to help his family. Always say, please, Dad, can you do something for us? Uh, the problem is that I am not able to do anything for them. I have no power. I am no longer even can help. The rescue flights arranged from Tel Aviv have applied to both citizens and permanent residents as well as their spouses and children. Fayad's only hope is that the same rules will apply in Gaza and that his children are somehow able to make it to safety. I pray that they can still safe and still alive so I can meet them in the future. Aaron MacArthur.
Global News. A murder charge has been laid in the case of a woman missing from Coquitlam. 57-year-old Jodine Millar disappeared from her home in November of last year. Foul play was suspected at the time. IHID has just announced that 30-year-old Carson McKay has been arrested in Calgary and charged with second-degree murder. Two days after Millar went missing, her vehicle was found crashed on Highway 1 in Abbotsford. She was nowhere to be found. Millar and the accused were known to each other. Ms. Millar's remains have been recovered. Due to the nature of the investigation, we can't be more specific as to where they were recovered or what state they were in. But what I can say is she has been her body has been recovered and um, the family has been notified of that. Millar had moved to the Tri-Cities from out of province shortly before she went missing. Whistler Search and Rescue is hoping to identify a cyclist spotted on surveillance camera in connection to the search for a missing senior in Whistler. 80-year-old Robert McKean and his dog were last seen October 9th near the top of Alpine Way. Whistler Search and Rescue and RCMP are now asking for the public's help to identify a person on a bicycle who was seen on Alpine Way the day McKean went missing. Anyone with information on who this is is asked to contact Whistler Search and Rescue. The public safety minister is reacting to a proposed class action lawsuit by female officers of municipal forces across the province. Allegations include gender-based discrimination, harassment and bullying. Those showing support include a former RCMP officer who was behind a different class action. And a warning, some details are disturbing. Catherine Urquhart reports. On Thursday, six municipal police officers, current and former, announced they had filed a proposed class action lawsuit for discrimination and harassment based on gender. The women have made numerous allegations. It says that you were threatened to be penetrated with a service rifle by a male officer. Yes, much like um, Helen said, you go quiet. Another officer, who can't be identified due to a publication ban, was sexually assaulted by a member of the Vancouver Police Department. She says the Police Act is failing them. There is no capture in the Police Act for when an officer puts their hand up and says, I'm actually a victim at the hands of another officer. Responding to the action, BC's public safety minister is promising changes to the Police Act. One of the key areas that we want to ensure is that we are able to deal with issues of harassment and how complaints are dealt with, and to ensure that policing in British Columbia, whether it's the municipal police force or the RCMP, Every man and woman who works for our police forces is working in a safe, respectful uh, environment and there will be changes coming to the police act. Their lawsuit names all 13 municipal police agencies in B.C. Also included the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner and B.C. Solicitor General and Public Safety Minister. The women say they suffered depression, PTSD and have seen co-workers kill themselves. Someone close to me did. She took her own life. Mm -hmm. Among those supporting the officers is former Mountie Janet Merlot. It's good to see them taking this action and moving forward, but it's so sad to see that this is still the only last option for all these women coming forward, that the, the police services themselves don't care enough to clean its act up. Merlot was one of the women behind a class action suit against the RCMP, which resulted in more than $100 million being paid out to female officers. So as long as these police forces can 
act the way they do, continue the way they do, and use taxpayers' money without holding anybody accountable, there's no reason for them to stop. Since the six women announced their lawsuit, a website has been set up to assist other female officers who want to learn more about the proposed class action. So far, the defendants have not responded to the court action. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The Surrey policing saga has taken yet another dramatic turn with the city filing a petition in B.C. Supreme Court to block the transition to the Surrey Police Service. As Janet Brown reports, it's yet another delay in a costly back and forth that's now dragged on for nearly five years. Surrey is going to court to try and stop the transition to a municipal police force. The city's retained prominent lawyer, Peter German, who is also a former RCMP deputy commissioner for the court battle. The issue is the jurisdiction of the minister to make the decision that he did on July 19th. This decision is the, the final decision. Uh, the direction is clear. It's done under the authority of the, uh, of the Police Act. German says the city can't support a police transition that would see a double-digit tax increase. The majority on council continue to oppose a police transition that will cost Surrey taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars without delivering any additional public safety benefit. The province's top cop is not backing down. I find it hard to understand why the city of Surrey would want to waste taxpayers' dollars on fighting a decision that's already been made and is going to be implemented. And the cost of the legal action will pale by comparison to the cost of this transition if it were to continue. The opposition on Surrey Council is disappointed with the legal action. This is a huge mess and you know it's something quite frankly that should have been resolved many years ago. We should have had a referendum right from the get-go but here we are wasting a lot of taxpayers money. I think it's hypocritical because the mayor is claiming the about costs yet she's not concerned about the cost of delaying the process. The Surrey Police Service isn't commenting on the legal action as it is now before the courts. Surrey's got an uphill struggle in showing and proving that the decision made by Mike for Farnworth was wrong in law. The next move comes Monday when Farnworth says he'll be introducing legislation that, quote, will provide clarity to the people of Surrey and won't be a surprise to the city. Janet Brown, Global News. Well, legislation will be introduced next week to make changes to the Police Act, partly because of what's happening with the Surrey police transition. Keith Baldry is here now with more on what we can expect out of that legislation. Keith? Yeah, you heard Janet mention legislation coming this week. As early as Monday, changes to the Police Act on a wide variety of issues. You heard Catherine Urquhart talk about harassment issues. That's going to be covered in the Police Act changes, but also other amendments that go to the heart of issues faced by municipalities when they want to transition to other police forces, uh, issues that have emerged because of the fiasco in, Syria, in Surrey. Here's a look at uh, three of the amendments that are going to be coming forth. First of all, there's going to be an amendment that will allow the minister, whether it's Mike Farmworth or whoever succeeds him one day, a quicker and better access to information regarding any police transition. Also, allowing earlier involvement by the minister in any police transition instead of waiting several years. And ensuring a council cannot reverse itself on an earlier decision to, to, for a transition to another police force, as Surrey did here. Uh, those amendments coming as early as Monday. Mike Farmer today pointed out these amendments, whether it's on these issues or similar issues regarding police forces, the work uh, from an all-party committee that re released a host of recommendations recently, and a number of them are going to be included in the bill that will be in front of the House as early as Monday.
Um, as you know, the, uh, the, the legislature uh, struck an all-party committee to review uh, changes to the, uh, to the Police Act. Uh, that work has been underway. The report has been received. Uh, we're working on the recommendations. So the BC Police Act is one of the oldest pieces of legislation in BC. It dates back to the 19th century. Uh, and these changes are going to be quite substantive. In fact, they may not end there. I wouldn't be surprised if we see further amendments in the spring session coming up next year. Too late for Surrey, but uh, down the road it might be effective in other municipalities. Keith, thanks very much for that. A bad landlord hit with a major fine, even though the evicted tenant didn't live to see it. Plus, in a housing crisis, one B.C. community seems to stand out from the rest for a lack of new condos. How the province says this project makes Oak Bay the poster child for construction paralysis. That's next on the News Hour. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Milestone for the rock-shredding monster known as Phyllis. That's coming up later on the news hour. Right now, though, a condo development has finally been given the green light in a Vancouver Island community more than a decade after it was first proposed. As Richard Zussman reports, the project was rejected over and over again by successive Oak Bay councils until the municipality found itself on the province's naughty list. It's the poster child for the inability to build housing in B.C., and more specifically in Oak Bay. After more than 10 years of rejections, this site on Oak Bay Avenue finally receiving the go-ahead. In this project, since there's the same type of building on both sides, yet they wouldn't approve the one in the middle. Uh, you know, it is important to see that this thing get approved. The four-story tower was last rejected by council in 2022. The developer says the reason why things have now changed is because of politics. They've... Uh, you know, dangled a bit of a hammer, I guess, if you like. And I think that that's what's happened this time. It became political, and as I say, they just can't risk saying no. Oak Bay was recently put on the province's list of municipalities in desperate need of housing and has been mandated by the government to build more than 650 units over the next five years, something the mayor says is not possible without help. Uh, we're not 100% sure what we need from the province at this point, but probably some help with staffing just to help process applications um, and probably some help with streamlining some of the provincial side of the, uh, of the application process. The province will be introducing housing legislation next week, allowing for automatic upzoning one of multiple pieces of housing legislation this fall. Housing Minister Ravi Kalon hopes this project in Oak Bay is a message to other municipalities. I think the lesson for every community out of this should be that we need to get housing built faster. We need to have some certainty in how decisions are made. Construction expected to start here in the next few months. A small step for a municipality that needs to take big ones if they're going to hit those goals imposed upon them by the province. Richard Zussman, Global News, Oak Bay. 
The Nanaimo landlord accused of evicting a dying senior is now facing a huge fine. Back in March, Sharon Kowalchuk and her husband were ordered out by their landlord who shut off their heat and power. The reason given, her end-of-life care was too disruptive. Kylie Stanton has the latest. So that's a few years ago. These photos are a bridge to the past. Her staying overnight. Something this family is holding on to after losing their beloved sister. She had a incredible heart, beautiful soul. I was very honoured to uh, be a part of her life. Sharon Kowalchuk died on September 22nd. She was 66 years old. I'm not feeling good today, so... Her final months, not at all the way she imagined her life would play out. My organs are shutting down slowly. Back in March, she and her husband Jerry spent weeks living out of a suitcase in this motel room after being evicted from their suite here in South Nanaimo. The couple said the landlord, Duart Rapton, told them Sharon's end-of-life care was too disruptive before cutting off heat and power to the unit. When Global News approached him for an interview, he had this to say. You guys ruined my life, that bitch was lying. But according to a 22-page decision by BC's Residential Tenancy Compliance and Enforcement Unit, Rapton had no grounds to evict the couple violating the Residential Tenancy Act a total of six times, resulting in a fine of $17,600. Yeah, it sends a message to landlords who think that they can break these types of rules, but it also sends a message to uh, tenants and renters that there is hope. And in this case, clearly a, a major fine has been uh, issued. He took advantage of so many people and treated everybody just like dirt. It was a nightmare. But the community helped to turn that around raising tens of thousands of dollars to support Sharon in her time of need. An update on the GoFundMe page reads, it's because of all of you that she was able to live out her final days in peace with a roof over her head. She had a really good quality of life because of them. The sisters say Sharon was quick to forgive and forget. We were kids. Letting go of the past. It wasn't important to her anymore. She just wanted to live her life to the fullest, and she did. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The city of Campbell River is removing tax-exempt status from a pair of community service organizations describing them as nuisance neighbors. The issues stemming from homelessness in the community. As Kristen Robinson reports, the local art gallery and overdose prevention site say they're being unfairly targeted. Sometimes it feels like we are alone down here fighting for our lives. Campbell River Art Gallery's executive director is grateful for more than 400 letters of support since council voted to rescind the nonprofit's tax exemption, claiming it's contributing to social disorder. All those in favor. Last month, the majority supported Councillor Ron Kerr's motions to remove permissive tax exemptions from the art gallery and the Vancouver Island Mental Health Society, which runs an overdose prevention site. To me, this is just rewarding poor behavior and poor neighborhood conduct. One councillor who opposed the amendments noted the art gallery is getting serious recognition for its work 
including the Art Hive program. I think their engagement with certain populations is actually keeping people off of the street. We try to be the very best neighbors that we can by welcoming everyone judgment-free, barrier-free into our spaces. The gallery fears it may lose its $80,000 community grant and aid and rent in kind valued at 40 grand. Should those punitive measures be enacted by council, that could be catastrophic for the Campbell River Art Gallery. To have a, a city attack people because they're trying to do their best to make sure people are housed is not the way you address this. The move could also backfire, according to BC's housing minister, who says city officials have talked to him about getting more supportive housing online. Campbell River may get more supportive housing units, but they may not find any willing partners to step forward to actually operate them because uh, they feel they're being vilified uh, for doing the work that they do. Council has now committed to working with the Art Gallery on solutions, which could see 2024's property taxes covered by the city's contingency fund. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Up next, we'll go live to Commercial Drive again, where a pro-Palestine rally is underway at this hour. We have a crew on scene. Plus, it was a promise critical to helping clean up Vancouver streets. The problem is it was naive. Why the mayor's plan to hire 100 mental health nurses is falling far short. And how women with dense breasts are at a disadvantage that puts their lives at risk. Good evening and some good news here in Surrey. Final clearing stages of a two-car crash that's affecting eastbound traffic on 100th Avenue at 148th Street. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $17 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One. High above a crash in Surrey. A quick update now on our top story, a pro-Palestinian march making its way up Commercial Drive in East Vancouver amid fears the Israel-Hamas war could escalate at any moment. Troy Charles is live at that rally. Uh, Troy, obviously very passionate there, but has it been peaceful so far? Yeah, Sophie, I just spoke with a few of the officers that are at the front of the protest here, and they said nothing nefarious has gone on, no arrests. Everything has been peaceful as far as they are aware. And as you can see, we are just coming up commercials here just about at the uh, intersection of First Avenue and about five more blocks. This is going to uh, end at Grandview Park up north on commercial. As you can see coming behind me, a lot of color bombs have been going off in the Palestinian colors. And a lot of people on commercial have been coming out of the bars and restaurants. A lot of bystanders are obviously not aware of what's going on. They're coming out to check on this very audible protest that's happening right now. Troy, we've seen in other parts of the country, notably in Toronto, there were protesters that were glorifying what Hamas had done in Israel. You've spoken to some of the people here, some of the protesters in Vancouver. What are they telling you? Yeah, what I've heard from these protesters is they are, they are against Hamas, calling them terrorists. They are against Hamas. And I actually spoke to one gentleman who is denouncing them. His family is in Gaza right now. He's got brothers and sisters in Gaza. He's, he's a Canadian citizen. He's got brothers and sisters in Gaza. He hasn't heard from them. Uh, he lost contact about 38 hours ago. He says the last six or seven days have just been traumatizing. He, he hasn't been able to go to work, he hasn't been able to sleep, and, and right now he's lost contact with his family in Gaza. So obviously he was here uh, for the pro-Palestine rally today. Uh, and just one more thing, uh, Troy. Earlier this week we saw a similar pro-Palestinian rally at the Art Gallery. We also saw 
um, you know, a counter-protester with an Israeli flag on Monday. Any sign of any um, ca uh, so-called counter-protest at this rally? Not that I've seen, Sophie. I mean, we've been we've been at the front. It's been hard to keep track of this in, this uh, entire trip up commercial. Haven't seen any Israeli flags or any counter protesters of that nature. So we will continue with the protest up to Grandview Park. But as for now, it's been peaceful and haven't seen any counter protests. And the crowd size is about the same. I think you mentioned 500 before around that. Is it? Yeah, I think that's correct, Chris. I think it's. It's stretched, Vic. It's stretched a bit as Steve can pull in on the crowd here. He can come down the side. Many flags. It was stretching about a, a full block earlier. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, well into the hundreds here for sure. But we all uh, throw it back to you. All right. Thanks for that. Troy Charles and our crew on Commercial Drive uh, keeping an eye on a pro-Palestinian rally underway at this hour. Troy, thank you. Well, one year after newly elected Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim made a dramatic promise to change policing in the city, half of his plan appears to have stalled. As Krista Dow reports, the goal of putting 100 mental health nurses on the streets isn't even close to its target. On day one, we are going to requisition for 100 new police officers and 100 new mental health nurses. 100 new police officers and 100 mental health nurses. 100 additional police officers and 100 mental health nurses. The election campaign promise, catchy and effective. Ken Sims pledge last October coming at a time of heightened anxiety, with the city averaging four random assaults per day in Vancouver. But one year on, only half of what he promised has actually been achieved. It's still a work in progress. You know, we made a commitment that we wanted to have these additional police officers and mental health nurses to deal with some of the, the challenges. A lack of progress when it comes to expansion of the CAR 8788 program, which pairs police officers with mental health nurses. So far, 100 police officers have been recruited. In fact, Vancouver Coastal Health says the new target is now 58 mental health nurses not 100. The problem is it was naive. I'm really frustrated by how slow this is moving. Mental health advocate Shirley Chan says council didn't take into account the reality on the front lines. That there's been so much burnout and people have been leaving the profession. Montague though defending the slow progress, calling the nurses situation much more complex, but maintaining they'll get the numbers. We don't want the police, we don't want coastal health, we don't want the province to rush into anything uh, to just get to the right numbers. We want to hire the right people. It just may take a little more time. In a statement, Mayor Ken Sim says he's encouraged by the progress so far, but knows the job isn't done. We definitely need to be better than where we've been. Chan adding these services were needed yesterday and will require future investments to truly tackle Vancouver's mental health and drug crisis. Krista Dow, Global News. Just ahead, the dense breast disadvantage. The first thing she said to me was, you've had this cancer in you for three years. What makes the diagnosis so difficult and how healthcare is slow to respond, coming up. Busy but steady in both directions over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge, which is some leftover volume on the east-west connector. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $17 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. 
early breast cancer screening is critical to positive outcomes for women over 40, but mammograms might not be the best way to detect cancer in women who have dense breast tissue. For those women, experts say the province needs to provide better access to the right diagnostics. Julie Nolan explains. Regular screenings are essential for women who have dense breast tissue. That's where there's an increase in fibrous or glandular tissue. The problem, dense breasts mean cancer is hidden or camouflaged on diagnostic imaging, and mammograms are just not good enough. So if a woman has a lump and she has dense breasts, the lump might not even show up, even if it's a cancer. So that's the number one risk. We call that masking. Breast tissue is less dense on the left, which are types A and B. But for about 43% of women who have types C and D to the right of your screen is where the risks increase dramatically. Experts say it's like looking for a snowball in the middle of a snowstorm. However, determining you have dense breasts isn't something you can find out on your own and only possible through diagnostic screening. It's crucial information that can save lives. Women who have dense breasts are at a higher than average risk of getting breast cancer. So we call it the double whammy. Okay, here we go. Back in 2018, BC led the way, becoming the first province in Canada to ensure women know exactly what their density type is. And while it's a welcome start, advocates say the province needs to figure out how to increase that access, not just for better tools for cancer detection through an ultrasound or especially an MRI, but also expanding the places to get that more accurate diagnosis, like in hospitals. Women know now, if they have dense breasts, that they can request an ultrasound um, with their doctor. Where it's falling short, though, is that there are not enough clinics in BC. We reached out to the BC Ministry of Health for comment, but we didn't receive a response by deadline. In the meantime, early detection is key. And when women with dense breast tissue have a higher risk of developing cancer than even women with a family history, those highly detailed annual screenings become more important than ever before. Julie Nolan, Global News. Just ahead, opening a no-booze bar. You can get mezcal, tequila, rum, vodka, gin. BC entrepreneurs who believe when it comes to alcohol, less is more. And later in sports, the secret to the Canucks' success in that game one win over the Oilers. And no, it wasn't just goal scoring. All right, Christy is here now with a look at our weather forecast. And we've had a couple of nice days, Christy, but change is afoot. <laughs> Yeah, you probably saw it just before the sun was setting. Cloud making its way in, really taking over the area. But there was lots of sunshine earlier today, and I put a call out to people to look for fog bows, and boy, did I get some beautiful photos. So this was from Pitt Lake. Thank you to Ruth for sharing that one with us. And we've got another one, actually, from Gabriola Island. She did send in another photo further back showing more of the uh, fog bow, but I couldn't help but use this one with a doggy in there. Uh, so thank you to Marjorie for that one. And this one is from Dawson Creek. So yes, we've had fog bows all across the region. Now you likely won't see fog bows tomorrow morning as we're starting to see more cloud cover. You won't get um, uh, sort of that, that sunlight to be able to filter its way through the fog, although we will still see patchy fog. These were the daytime highs, the low 20s as you can see, and we're going to see the temperatures drop in the coming days across all of the province. Why? Because we've got a different pattern on deck, a whole series of systems headed towards the south coast. We need that moisture certainly, and we 
are going to see it over the next several days, although there's some uncertainty as to how much moisture we'll see, of course, and the timing of it. But in the meantime, get ready for the wet weather. It's going to feel like fall over the next little while. So increasing cloud for those of you in the interior late in the day tomorrow and then certainly into your Sunday, you'll start to see that rainfall. Bulk of the rainfall for our region will be tonight. It will ease and become on and off throughout the day tomorrow. And I want to mention as well, we've got another wave of rain that will happen Saturday night and then we'll see it a little lighter during the day. So our weekend's not pan panning out too badly considering the bulk of the rainfall will happen overnight. All right, tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Vernon. This is looking out over the valley where, yes, they had fog and we'll likely see it again tomorrow. And that's very cool to see it sort of just stuck in the valley there like that. Thank you to Corey for that one. All right, thanks very much, Christy. Beautiful shot. That sure is. Okay, let's get a shot of Barry in a moment talking about sports, but first... Crews have reached another milestone in the construction of the Broadway subway. That is the machine known as Phyllis, boring a tunnel that reached the upcoming Oak VGH station. The 150-meter-long machine has now passed through four of the six underground stations, having excavated more than two kilometers of tunnel since the fall of last year. And after it undergoes some scheduled maintenance, Phyllis will make its way to the future Granville South Station. The Broadway subway is expected to open in 2026. Why do you think they call it Phyllis? It is named after a, a mountaineer named Phyllis. And I, I believe she started the... Girl Guides in BC. Okay. She's a she's a high achieving right. historical figure and they in chose BC. That particular that machine to name right. after her. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, <laughs> That's true. The more you know. <laughs> uh, Barry is in for Squire mm -hmm. tonight. Now we all know. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to check in with the Lions who are on the field right now in Hamilton and the Canucks embark on their five game road trip, much more confident in their team defensive game. I think we have larger groups of guys understanding and buying into what we're doing. Doing the right thing is contagious and it can lead to a lot of wins. That story when we come back. Look forward to that. Thanks, Barry. Also tonight, the next big thing in the beverage world, the joy of drinking without the hangover. Okay, the Canucks still basking in the glow of that amazing first game victory. But what they do from here on out is what really matters. That's right. Still 81 to go. We will get to them uh, in a moment. But the Lions are uh, going to get the lead tonight. Coming off that uh, devastating overtime loss to Winnipeg last week, you had to wonder if there would be any after effects tonight in Hamilton. The Lions still do have a slim chance of finishing first in the West. If they win their last two and Winnipeg loses its last two, that's not likely. But the Lions needed a win tonight just to keep any hopes alive. New running back, Jaquan Hardy, former Dallas Cowboy, played three games there in 2021, showing off some skills here, making some moves to get a first down, led to a Sean White field goal, and the Lions led 3-0 after one. Opening play the second quarter, Bo Levi Mitchell's been hurt most of the year, playing some games late for the Thai Cats, but he's picked off. Josh Woods read it perfectly, 45-yard pick six, lines up 10-0. Thai Cats did answer with a touchdown, but... 
The Lions did the same. Vernon Adams Jr. leading a nice drive, highlighted by this uh, fantastic diving catch by Alexander Hollins. What a receiving crew the Lions have. They got five of the best in the league. Lays flat out to keep that drive alive. And then on the next play, Adams just floats it out to Dominique Rimes. Not going to have an easier touchdown. 30th TD pass of the year for Adams Jr. It's 17-7. But just before halftime, Bo Levi Mitchell drops it in for Tim White. Second TD pass of the game for Mitchell. So 2014 Lions at the half. And then in the third quarter, Lions took a couple of dumb penalties to keep the Hamilton drive alive. And Matthew Schultz now at QB will hit Tim White for another touchdown. So Hamilton led for the first time 21-20. Got to give some love to Sean White, veteran kicker. Do you know he's now 48 of 51? This year, three misses in 51, 96%. He is so dependable. 23-21 lines on top, and then they will uh, get another touchdown here as Vernon Adams will find Hollins for the touchdown. It's late, it's close. 30-27, Lions lead. Canucks fans are still basking in the glow of that eight-goal explosion against the Oilers in the season opener Wednesday. But as fun as it is to score all those goals, the Canucks' improved defensive play and their puck battle success is really the key to becoming a consistent team that can win every night, even when they score two goals instead of eight. The Canucks were among the NHL's worst when it comes to goals allowed last season, so holding the top-scoring team to just one can feel pretty good. I think we're more confident in the fact that our D zone has been pretty good and um, we feel confident and everyone knows what their job is and we're confident in the staples of our game and, uh, and saying all that it's one game and it doesn't mean much. It's only been one game but there seems to be a strong commitment to defensive responsibilities and improving on last season's miscues. We were one of the worst teams that we gave up the blue line last year and we want to change that. You know, we got to change that narrative, and that's by that's by tracking, that's by back checking, that's by being in the right position. Even if you're in, even if you track and we get the puck, you're still in scoring position. That's why I don't. Some guys that don't understand, you're still going to get the chance. It's just it's a it's a little more hard work, obviously, but I think guys are buying into that. A great way to get the group to buy in is to get assistant coach and Stanley Cup champion Adam Foote to help deliver the message. He's been in the game a long time, um, really understands the, understands the game at a high level and has really helped us on the D zone side, but also the O zone side. And I know Footy was, especially this game plan, he wanted us to make sure we get a lot of five on five play, almost like a scrimmage type atmosphere. I think when you don't skate, you gotta make sure you don't lose these, uh, you know, waste these practices. Um, last year, sometimes I thought we gave practice away and I think now they're starting to understand you can't waste a practice. The team will find out how well the defense travels as the Canucks embark on a five-game road trip starting with a rematch in Edmonton on Saturday. You know, I think the leadership group understands how important it is. this is business too. I mean, you want to enjoy yourself, don't get me wrong, but there is business here. we got to show we're a team that can play on the road and play under stress and, you know, pressure situations, whether we're up or down. That's the key, right, going in these different buildings and playing some really quality teams. All right, very early this morning in Japan, Canada's men's national team uh, took on Japan in a friendly. Japanese dominated with their speed and talent, had a bit of luck. Alfonso Davies just trying to clear it, bounces off his knee, off Milan Borian's face and in for an own goal. 3-0 Japan at half. Canada did get a consolation goal late. It's the white cap, Junior Hoylett, taking advantage of a mistake by the Japanese goalkeeper here, spilling the cross. But Canada 
tough day at the office in Japan as they fall uh, four to one in a friendly. All right, PGA Tour is in fabulous Las Vegas for the Shriners Children's Open. How about Abbotsford's Nick Taylor, 6-under-65 yesterday, followed it up with a 4-under-67, knocks down the eagle putt here at 16. Nick is in contention, 10-under, tied for fourth, just two off the lead, and Adam Hadwin and Adam Spenson, both at 7-under, tied 20th, so the BC boys doing well. Lexi Thompson playing against the guys this week, had it to 5-under on her round, but faltered a bit. She finished at even par, missed the cut by three, but pretty solid performance. Beat about 35 PGA players with her score of even par. So she did pretty well. She's one of the bigger hitters on the LPGA, so going back on the tee boxes didn't hurt her as much. But trying to become the first woman to make the cut in a men's event, I think, in about 80 years. But just, wow. just missed. Yep, just missed. All right, thanks very much, Barry. Up next, the booze-free bar for those who want to take a little alcoholiday. A recent trend in the beverage industry is increasing the chance a no-booze bar could be a hit. As Paul Johnson reports, a Port Coquitlam couple is betting on it with their new business venture. This is Piquette Zero. This is from Nova Scotia. It's a wine-type drink, but it's made from um, hops and sea salt. At a trade show in Abbotsford Friday, Raquel Foran and her husband show us the products they think are the next big thing in the beverage world. You can get mezcal, tequila, rum, vodka, gin, uh, you name it, any spirit, it comes in a non-alcoholic version. When it opens next month, Port Coquitlam's Bevies intends to be BC's first non-alcoholic bar. A 2,000 square foot space they hope will get the teetotalers out to hit the bar. It was a brainwave that uh, my husband and I wanted to get into a business of our own when he retired from his career. It was inspired by new stats that appear to show young people may be abstaining in higher numbers than their predecessors. And Raquel's husband's experience as a non-drinker, tired of having to nurse a single beer all evening to fit in with the imbibers and not impressed with the options typically available. Here's what he was offered at a downtown hotel recently. They offered him a Shirley Temple. So to us, that's just unacceptable. Especially now, with many more and better alcohol-free options out there. They hope to curate a large collection of them and offer a new take on Margaritaville. No wasting away required. People are tuned into the fact that um, alcohol isn't good for us. Paul Johnson, Global News. I think it's the way of the future. Yeah. Might be. Some good products out mm -hmm. there. Might be. I'm still mm -hmm. old school, but I, I appreciate what they're trying to do. <laughs> and by old school, you mean yeah. full proof. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> full proof. All right, thanks very much, everyone. Hope you enjoy responsibly this weekend. Good night, all.